ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show. My name is Xavier Katana. We've got a phenomenal broadcast set up for you guys tonight. A lot of ancient wisdom that we're going to be unlocking. Talking about esoteric Egypt, Kundalini. I've got my buddy Astral here, the co-pilot seat. I'm going to tell you more about him in just a second. I'd like to thank everyone for, for being here tonight. If you're listening to this live, cool. If you're listening to this on the podcast version, that's cool too. Just going to turn the music down and we'll get to business. The human experience is 93 million miles from the nearest rough turbulence as we shine like a light through your third eye in the midnight sky. My name is Xavier Katana. I'll be your host for this evening. My co-pilot is a good buddy of mine. His name is Astral. Astral, how's it going, man? Hey, what's up, man? Coming in uh, on the astral plane. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So I'm just going to read your bio here. Astral is a futurist, musician, designer, researcher. His work is in the parapsychology field. It includes, he's been given multiple scientific research grants, scholarships, and he's done uh, numerous conference presentations. He was featured by Vice uh, Magazine, Vice uh, the, his focus subjects have been on precognition, remote viewing, out-of-body experiences, and primarily on the UFO, UAP phenomena. Uh, Astral, I'm so glad to have you here, man. Thank you so much for, you know, uh, just, just helping me hold space here tonight. Thank you, man. I appreciate you having me. I'm, I'm looking forward to the discussion um, and learning a lot more about these subjects. Playing in the big time. Okay, so... Our guests for tonight are Chance Chance Gardner and Brad Clausen. Uh, Chance Chance Gardner is an award-winning visual artist, 3D animator, composer, and the writer and producer of the cult classic documentary series Magical Egypt. After a 25-year career producing 3D animation, graphics, and promotional campaigns for network television, Gardner retired in the late 90s to fo focus on producing esoteric programming and documenting the, the evidence for alternative or, quote, forbidden historical models of mankind. Gardner is currently in production on a, on a Magical Egypt feature film, as well as season four of the Magic e Magical Egypt series. Chance, such a pleasure. Thank you so much for being here. Good on you, man. Absolutely my pleasure. Okay, Brad, Brad Clausen is a, a professional graphic designer specializing in poster art and illustration. In 1998, he graduated from the University of Denver with a BFA in graphic design. From 2000 to 2008, he worked as an in-house graphic designer for the band Pearl Jam. In the summer of 2008, he left his job with Pearl Jam and he formed his own one-man design company called Artillery Design, where for the past 14 years, he has and continues to make posters for bands like Pearl Jam, Queens of the Stone Age, Foo Fighters, Widespread Panic, Nine Inch Nails, Metallica, and many more. Brad, such a pleasure. Welcome to HXP. Thank you very much for having me. Happy to be here. So, you know, the Magical Egypt series was something that, that hit me hard enough to uh you know, bring you guys here onto the show and it, it's been a while since we've done a show but i'd love to just lay the groundwork let's lay the foundation i mean uh 
what inspired you guys to what was what was it about Egypt exactly that you know drew you into Egypt? And either one of you can answer this, uh, Brad or Chance. Uh, Chance, you should go first because my interest in Egypt is because of Chance. So Chance, you should start. <laughs> Um, when I was younger, uh, I grew up in the sixties where it was just in the air, this amazing music that was focused on psychedelics and the mysteries and occultism. And, uh, my parents, my father was an artist. And so I grew up, um, around him sculpting all the time. And just, I had a lot of artistic influence, uh, in my life and possibly genetically. So um, when I was very young, I used to go to the library and uh, would check out these books about ancient Egypt. And even as a little tot, I would look into those faces of the sculptures and I could just, they were active. It was like the sculptures were possessed and they were doing things to me when I looked at them. And so from a very young age, I've had a fascination with ancient Egypt and also this fascination with psychedelia and the occult and symbols from the mystery schools, symbols of the tarot and just things like that and at a certain point uh when i got a little older i got a chance to meet john anthony west and we just clicked and i'd already been kind of obsessed like an obsessed stalker of his so when i actually met him he invited me to egypt with him and i literally uh got the next ticket i could find out of town i was so excited about going that I kind of floated a soft retirement at my work and just left without telling most people. And I just, I went to Egypt with a crappy little one ship camera and no particular plans, nothing written, but just followed John West around Egypt like he was the Grateful Dead. And uh, at the end, we came up with this weird little quirky show called Magical Egypt. And then uh, 20 years later, uh, Joe Rogan kind of took a shine to the show and started really evangelizing about it. And he had John West on the show a couple of times. And and um, there was just such a positive response to the show that it had been sort of languishing out there on the internet. And so we decided to do a second season. So um, in uh, 2000, I would say 18, uh, we did a second season and Brad came on as this explosive new voice uh, with some just unbelievable research that was the core of our research project, Magical Egypt Documents, this artistic research project. Mm -hmm. And uh, Brad had this bombshell discovery that uh, we built on, it was our third uh, research member, Kerry Osborne, had some really interesting early discoveries. And we just started putting, comparing notes and this thing became apparent, just this explosive uh, series of discoveries that have never been mentioned in Egyptology. Uh, they're fundamental bombshell discoveries that really changed the way we look at our past and changed the way we look at ourselves. And uh, it is an extremely contentious show, and uh, just about everybody in the world except Egyptologists love the show and are giving us good feedback. The Egyptologists hate it because we've noticed some things in the Egyptian art that have been hiding in plain sight for as long as people have been around, and nobody's noticed it until this series of discoveries Brad made that we kept building on uh, mm. that we'll see in Magical Egypt about mm -hmm. an ancient technology that is – uh, it's a union of art and science that presents this series of, um, well, this body of knowledge that uh, ancient Egypt was in possession of that seems to be a science of consciousness. And because it was because it was uh, the art that presented this stuff, uh, it sort of makes sense that it would take a research project made of artists. It was an unusual research project made of artists. And um, yeah, we ended up making a discovery that the art was speaking in this language that artists understand. 
And it is a completely different picture of ancient Egypt and of our past and of the intelligence and the degree of science of the people in our distant past. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's such an amazing, tremendous amount of work that you guys have done. And, 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 and just on a sort of offshoot trip, you know, following uh, John around and, and there's a, there's an amazing quote, uh, John Anthony West. Uh, he says, Egypt is like sex. You can read about it. You can even look at pictures, but until you experience it, you understand nothing. And I mean, it's, it's been such a dream for me to, to go there and there it is, there is a very mystical quality. Like even today, like we, there are many questions like how were the pyramids constructed? How, how did these people do what they were doing? Right. So, I mean, it, 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 it is interesting. What, what did you find about how these structures were constructed? Was there anything that you, that you started to gleam in, in that realm? Brad, do you want to do this one? Um, well, I don't know if uh, from from the work that we've done, I don't know if we've come to any sort of conclusions about you know how things were built or how they moved stones or any of that stuff. But what we have kind of the the, the thing that we have sort of figured out, I think, in in some way, is that the Egyptians and other civilizations understood ways to tap into higher states of consciousness that um, give them access to states of knowing that give them, you know, sort of states of revelation or epiphany. Mm -hmm. So, um, however they were able, the Egyptians were able to do things that we maybe don't understand how they did. In my opinion, um, they had, a, they understood the brain and consciousness and they understood how to tap into these states of knowing and they had revelations. They had, you know, they, they contemplated and they thought about this stuff and then they went into, basically isolation chambers or big dark stone rooms and isolated the entire external world and were left with just their consciousness and probably had imbibed some sort of psychedelic brew and gone through a whole bunch of you know physiological refinement of the body and tapped into these states of knowing. And I think that's how they were able to do things that we don't understand because they they had access to perennial truth. They had access to to, you know, to how to solve these problems because they were they were thinking about them and then they were going into these what i refer to as kind of gymnasiums for consciousness these these temples mm. or these dark these dark rooms and tapping into states of knowing so I, I mean how did they how did they build their temples how did they move these stones i'm not entirely sure but i i am relatively certain to think that they they were tapping into universal truth and universal knowing and so they tapped into some sort of uh aspect some sort of truths about physics or some sort of truths about you know mathematics or pulleys or systems or way to move stones or how to maybe even make stones i think that's one of the more interesting things to me about um pyramids and other big stone um monuments across the the world uh, some of those stones speaking like peru have little areas of the stone where they're broken off that looks like the same areas when you look at glass blowers when they have like i don't know what's called in glass blowing but you have like a handle Mm -hmm. that's holding onto the glass thing and you kind of break it off and it leaves this little nub in. there's walls in Peru that have those little like nubs and stuff like that. So that's an interesting idea to me that perhaps they were somehow making some sort of cement or melting rock in some way, or just doing something so that you get those perfectly nice seams and those rounded edges and stuff like that. But that's just, you know, that's a theory that people have put out there, but I don't know. We, I don't think we could we don't make any claims to say we know how they were, you know, how the pyramids were built or how they moved these these rocks. But I think we can make the the, the 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 a strong presentation that they were able they did these things because they were able to tap into states of of knowing and and, and truth. 
Hmm. Egypt, um, Egypt was the home of the the oldest. Um, that what Brad said was absolutely correct. And what makes this so interesting is nobody knows. That's why it's such a fertile ground for speculation and such a green pasture for charlatans and nutcases. Is you can really make up anything you want and say it about Egypt. One of the things we've tried to do in in magical Egypt is you know hold on to that tether of scientific credibility and and um, examine some really practical things that are right there in front of you, like the uh, cement. The oldest recipe we have for cement in the world comes from ancient Egypt, and uh, it, to this day, it's still one of the leading contenders for the best cement that you can pour. And um, there's all kinds of evidence to indicate that they didn't lift a lot of those stones, but they actually poured them into place. They had some way of liquefying stone or maybe something even stranger where you could grow stone like uh, like crystals. But mm. a lot of those things in the pyramid were actually poured into place because we know that uh, what the Egyptologists have been telling us are, are wrong and that you can't build a ramp. If you build a ramp that works to drag stones up, it's too steep and you can't drag the stones up. There's all, uh, practical reasons why all the things we've been told about the building of the pyramids aren't correct. But there are these really interesting anecdotal stories. This is about all you can do is anecdotal stories from, from other cultures at the time. But there is a bunch of people in that area that know how to use acoustics to lift stones. Mm -hmm. If you just type acoustic levitation in YouTube, you'll see all these traditions of actually using musical instruments, and they were quite elaborate at where they would stand, and the uh, the bass players, the ones playing the, the bass horns, would be farther back. And they had all these precise, and you have to uh, form a kind of half circle so that the focus of the sound is on the stone. But even back in mm -hmm. the 20s, there were missionaries and people who were documenting uh, how monks uh, would lift really giant stones and it may have something to do with the crystal content in the stones that allows the audio you know um piezoelectric quartz crystal is what you use in electric guitars and um and, and other things and right. they're vibration detectors and they turn vibration into an electrical signal so that's why it works on a guitar but like ed Leeds scalden there's this cool guy ed Leeds scalden sure. who made a place called coral castle, coral castle. and he yeah. seemed to have been lifting yeah uh, amazing story if uh, if people out there haven't heard the story amazing story and he was just a spindly little guy who was all by himself <laughs> and he built this whole castle out of giant giant stones and he said the same thing. He was using a trick that the ancient Egyptians knew, and he wouldn't tell anyone what it was. And he took it to his grave, whatever that trick was. But it seemed to have to do with sound waves vibrating the crystal structures inside the stone. So the sandstone that was natural in Egypt was a perfect candidate for this. And um, lots and lots of interesting possibilities. But uh, just to button up what, what Brad said, no one really knows. And it's why it's such a ongoing and enduring riddle. And, you know, the farther our science advances, those less we seem to understand about it. Sure. I think, you know, I think I just did not that, like I said, we don't have a whole thing on how the, how the stuff is built in the, in the magical Egypt series, but like there's something I think about often with that, which is the step pyramids. Like we all look at those and they're in Mexico and they have other places. And it doesn't seem like people get too as like blown away by how the step pyramid was made. Like it's a car, there's Joser's King Joser's pyramid. And that's like that step pyramid. And in my brain, I often think, I don't know why the ramp idea is there. When if I, Whenever I look at a step pyramid, I think you have the platforms of the steps. Mm -hmm. Couldn't you just lift blocks up onto each one of the steps and fill in the steps to make the triangle shape of the outer thing? Like the, I don't know if that's hmm. if that would be a possibility, but there's a part of me where I feel like the step pyramid has a basis for all the scaffolding mm -hmm. to stand on and have shelves and have different steps. And you could lift, you know, you could pull these rocks up to each step and bring them up to the next step. But then I don't know how you, you know, once you fill in the steps, at one point you're going to be 
you know, the last one you have to fill or the last row you have to fill. I don't know how you do it exactly, but yeah. there's a part of me whenever I look at step pyramids, I'm like, it seems like all the scaffolding is there to just fill in the steps and make the surfaces of the triangles and stuff. But, but anyways, like I said, that's I, not... I mean, I'm somewhere between, between cymatics and, and, you know, using the third eye as like some sort of, you know, mental concentration and, and ley lines seem to have something to do with it because there were, I mean, there was so much math involved in, where these structures are built and you know so i wanted to ask you like there's 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 so many questions that have that have come to mind as you guys are talking but there's such a there was such a difference there in the society of ancient egypt and our society today and it it feels like today uh we you know something has been hidden from us like we you know there's this this sacred understanding of you know the third eye uh, for example or you know even just the question like what happens after you die i mean these these things don't seem to come up people are so busy with their 9 to 5 jobs and you know they're just so immersed in you know if you have a 9 to 5 and and two kids you're not asking these types of questions yeah. you don't have time to not so the way the system here is designed now right and so we could i mean we could get into like archons or you know whatever but but it, it, I, I want to ask, you know, why why was the third eye or the pine cone why why was that such a a major point for for the Egyptians? You want to take start chance? Uh, yeah, well, so uh, if you read up on parallel cultures, cultures that were coexistent, and some cultures that existed before uh, dynastic Egypt. The Vedic culture is all about the third eye. And by the way, um, I'd like to introduce this idea, this idea of the Holy Trinity, that in just about all of the major religious structures, you have a Holy Trinity of some sort. You have Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, and you have the G uh, Jesus God and the Holy Spirit. But there's hundreds and hundreds of them when you look into um, religions all over the world. And what the conclusion we've come to is that this whole idea is an allegory. Most of the religion and most of uh, spiritual stories are allegories for something that's uh, it's much more practical. But um, the uh, oh, oh my God, tell me where, tell me where, tell me where we're going. <laughs> I started writing notes and I forgot where I was going. Oh, the third eye, the significance of like, oh yeah, right. So yeah. The, um, the um the third eye should actually be thought of as a threefold thing. So the three um three holy deities mm -hmm. actually represent the pineal gland, the pituitary, and the thalamus. Sure. And your third eye is actually this threefold structure in the diencephalon. And what's really interesting about that is two of those parts, the pineal gland and the pituitary, both have these uh, slight magnetic fields around them. So this has been pretty much wiped out of Western culture. But back in the 1800s, before all this information got withdrawn. There are practices that you can do, and this is the essence of occultism. It is really the essence of the higher uh, stratus of yoga, that through these certain uh, exercises that were at the point of the mystery schools, uh, you can amplify the magnetic fields of these two parts of your brain. And when you amplify them enough, they start to overlap, interestingly, um, creating the vesica Pisces symbol, you know, the two circles that overlap. This might be a kind of secret meaning for that symbol. But mm -hmm. when you start uh, developing through these Eastern uh, or Vedic uh, techniques, you will start amplifying the magnetic field of these parts of your brain, and this sort of new or higher consciousness starts to come online that um, – Xavier, you and I have talked about this quite a bit. It's a wild card, what's going to happen when your third eye opens and different people, it's like the X-Men, different people have different like superpowers, cities, they're called S-I-D-D-H-I-S in the, sure. in the 
Vedantic. But mm-hmm. these superpowers, you don't know what it is. Sometimes you can read thoughts. Sometimes you can see the future. Different people have different uh, attributes. But it seems like it's an evolutionary stage that we all should be moving into. And it's just, we, we've talked about it being like a second puberty you can go through where your higher body or your mental body or your, you know, your psycho-spiritual body goes through a puberty of its own. It's like a second puberty. And this higher body has organs of perception. So if you can do this, or as a result of a Kundalini experience, sometimes this apparatus comes online, but this threefold structure in your brain, when you bring it to this point where it actually comes online, you will start noticing different properties of consciousness, and you will start being one of those strange mystic people that uh, you know can sometimes hear thoughts, or you know your dreams will predict the future. All of these things aren't weird supernatural things; they're normal parts of the evolutionary process. But for some reason in our culture, there seems to be a war on this kind of like we're chickens we're all being harvested and they don't want us to know about this empowering thing so we stay it's you know it's it's an easy road to go down a road to madness trying to speculate on why this is happening but one thing i think it's hard to argue with is there does seem to be a war on consciousness and higher states of consciousness and we live in a culture that prefers to keep us disabled in this particular way so all the food that you eat you know has chemicals in it that'll calcify your pineal gland and it's a very interesting um way of spiritually neutering or castrating us uh, giving us these additives and stuff that calcify parts of the brain kill the magnetic fields and whatnot so it's there and everyone has access to it but for some reason the people in charge um, whoever that might be mm-hmm. seem to be hesitant in the western world to even talk about it so all of these incredible traditions and these birthright this amazing kind of spiritual occult birthright that we all have is actively withheld from us and that's part of the reason why we decided to go public about the kundalini topic because it's happening to more and more people and uh it's not addressed there's no context in the western world so people think they're going insane and people are isolated the people who've had it and so one of the things that uh, we've been talking about, I've been having a series of enjoyable chats with Xavier about this, that this is a threshold event and there's something happening in society where more and more people are waking up to this, like a pan of popcorn that starts with just a couple of kernels that pop. And pretty soon the whole thing goes, but there's some early warning, early adopters, canaries in the coal mine uh, that have experienced Kundalini. And the more we talk about it, the more it gets normalized. Um, we've had a number of, well, we've had one prominent person and a couple other people mentioned that somebody's had Kundalini experiences literally listening to brad and i talk which i don't take any credit for that it's probably brad (laughs) but um there's more more and more people are experiencing this thing and um it seems to be the most important thing in the world and it seems to be this evolutionary thing we're all going through a collective puberty but there might very well be some forces that are interested in keeping that from happening well i think i think too uh to add to that that comment about the third eye, I think um, the, the third eye is one of those things that has this is this has all this enigma and mystery around it too. So I think there's this ability as artists and Chance and I have talked about this a lot. This idea of the third eye really just being your mind's eye, and, and you know, and Chance and I as artists have to flex that muscle all the time. We live in our mind's eye, like we have to come up with concepts. And for when I'm doing poster artwork, I have to visualize things in my, I see them in my mind. I'm not seeing them with my two eyes. They're in, they're in my, you know, inside my head that I'm seeing these things. And I think that's sort of the, a, 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 an important thing to kind of, there's obviously all kinds of things. If you have a psychedelic experience, if you have a near death experience, if you have a Kundalini experience and you could say your third eye is opened, all kinds of all sorts of insane, crazy, surreal things can be happening in your awareness and stuff like that. Sure. But I think at its core, 
you know, it's really is this idea of, again, if you go into the king's chamber of the, of the, of the pyramid, it's total darkness and you're just sitting there, but eventually you'll start seeing things in your, in your mind's eye. And, and, you know, when you go to bed at night, you close your eyes and there's this other quote unquote eye that is seeing, you're still seeing things in your dreams, you know? So, uh, to try and kind of demystify that third eye concept a little bit and get more at this like actual truth of what it is is I think it's this, you know, I, if you, anybody who read the X-Men comic books, uh, you know, or read like the, or watched the movies, they had the X-Men trained in this thing called the danger room, which was just an empty room, but they could basically put them into any situation, like a virtual reality sort of thing. And they could go train against, you know, the bad guys and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And my, that to me, I think is a great analogy for what's kind of happening in your mind's eye is that when you get to these higher states of consciousness, you have this other, sort of virtual space to contemplate and to think about stuff and to try things out and to contemplate and have, you know, have these ideas and have these visualizations. And, um, I, I think, you know, when, um, Chance has talked about this too, that idea of like visualize an apple in your mind's eye, like try and visualize an apple. And, and to what degree do you see that apple? And when my family was here for Thanksgiving, my mother-in-law just happened to have something on my social media that was this same sort of thing. It had four versions of an apple. One was like just a silhouette of an apple. Another one was sort of a clip art cartoon one. And then another one was a fully a photograph of an apple. And it was like, which one do you see in your mind's eye when you picture an apple? And the people that were at my my house for Thanksgiving saw varying degrees. They, some people saw just the the you know the silhouette, and some people who were the more of us that were more artistic could see the full apple, see it from you know multiple angles, see which change the lighting on it, change the texture of the skin, make it more rotten, make it more fresh, you know. And so I think that's an interesting aspect of the of just any human skill, any human ability that there's some people that have more of a natural ability to utilize their third eye or to utilize their mind's eye and to see things in a way that maybe other people can't and there's even the thing called infantasia which is where people can't visualize in their mind's eye um, that's why they don't like reading books because they can't they can't paint the pictures in their mind so there's something about that that idea of the third eye that it's not just some sort of mystical spiritual thing that that ties you to these things that does happen when you take psychedelics or have a kundalini experience I mean, i'm not trying to diminish that at all hmm. i'm more just trying to get at the core what i think that this idea of seeing or sight, you know, in, in, in Rishi, that word Rishi means seer, you know, and when you understand something, you, you say, I see what you mean. You know, sight is, is, is also synonymous with, with comprehension and understanding. So that idea of seeing all, you know, or having an all seeing eye or, or a third eye is also this, this poetic symbol about knowledge, about being able to see everything, about being able to know everything. So there's a, it all kind of comes back to this idea of gnosis and knowing and, and sight as comprehension. So that, that symbol of the third eye is just such a heavily, you know, as far as a logo goes, as far as graph design and logos go, that, that, that Egyptian eye of Horus is just so loaded with symbolism and so much, it's so rich with meaning. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's a testament to how brilliant the Egyptians were that in that simple symbol of an eye, they could encode information about the brain they can get information about uh, states of knowing and, and and all this all this other stuff so it's 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 a really fascinating symbol and, and has to deal i think in my opinion with this idea of sight as comprehension and, and this knowing sure i'm Ashley, you're awfully quiet back there what's on your third eye <laughs> well uh, i think too um when uh, a lot of the talk uh, also is centered around like astral projection and it makes me think about um, remote viewing, uh, sensory deprivation, ways to tap into 
and use creative. Um, and and it, it makes a lot of sense that back in Egypt, they uh, if, if, if it were more accepted in society and they were to use these uh, altered states of consciousness to gather this information, because a lot of what I, I hear um, is UAP related. So when people talk about Egypt, it's uh, alien physical help of them coming down and helping. But um, man, what I found really interesting was that they acquire the knowledge through these altered states of consciousness in their third eye, and then they also explain it and uh, through uh, this art. And and so I guess my question would be too, um, like the connection of all of the art in terms of like trying to explain the location of the third eye. Like, could you guys talk about that more of like in the brain of how the art was described too? There was um, the the fundamental thing that got us started was what brad was just talking about the eye of horus there's this amazing and probably the most iconic image in ancient egypt is the eye of horus and it literally if you look at the brain from the side if you splash your brain down the middle the diencephalon is the structure that we were just talking about that's the threefold uh third eye that whole diencephalon structure when you see it from the side looks exactly like the icon because uh, if you look at the egyptian eye it's not completely anatomically correct there's some weird spikes sticking off of it and stuff so it turns out when you look at that eye and then you look at the third ventricle in the brain and the whole structure of the diencephalon it is exactly this third eye and so what a beautiful way to take um to take this idea that brad was just talking about the the symbol of knowing and seeing and perception is the eye only this is the eye single the single eye in your head and sort of like one set of eyes your double eyes look outward and one set of eyes monitors the inner world and so because we live in a culture that is constantly keeping you out of your head you know when you go have lunch there's music playing in the restaurants or everywhere you go our whole society is structured to keep you externally oriented and so when you start participating in that strange inner universe in your head that's the inner eye that, that takes over and um there's an interesting thing about egypt in the mystery schools that if you were an initiate in egypt the first thing you had to do was, um, first of all, take a vow of silence for five years, which is a great idea for a lot of people I know. Uh, but uh, also, you would stay underground. Um, you would stay underground for five years. You'd stay in the dark. And anybody who's read um, our friend Rick Strassman had an sure. amazing book, the DM DMT book. He's been on the DMT show DMT tends to... When Thomas Edison invented the light bulb, our pineal glands have been shrinking ever since the invention of the light bulb and artificial light. And so when these initiates would go underground for five years, you'd have this incredible buildup of DMT because you never did see light for a period of time. So you're kind of supercharging your third eye in these uh, early initiatory things. And I'm sure it wasn't pleasant, but they seem to not only understand the parts of the brain that were responsible for consciousness, which is what uh, season two is all about. We show that in the artwork and in the statuary and even in the architecture, they'd schematized the important parts of the brain that played a role in consciousness. And it seemed to be a science that you learned, uh, which was very akin to yoga. It's basically what yoga is now. You learn the actual structure of your brain. You learn how to intentionally focus your energy in your body to do these things like amplifying the magnetic field like we were talking about. And the reason why you need these really exact schematics of your brain is when you're doing these advanced yoga and tantric kundalini techniques, you're focusing energy on very specific parts of the brain. So if you don't know the layout of your brain, you're never going to be able to do that. So in the artwork, we found um, these unbelievably complicated and accurate, by the way, of course, accurate 
schematics of the brainstem and certain structures in the brainstem and, of course, the diencephalon showing that they were not only obsessed with consciousness, but they could actually specifically pinpoint the parts of the brain that were involved in consciousness, and more importantly, the kinds of the parts of the brain that would initiate this higher consciousness that we kind of get a sneak peek of when we do hallucinogens or in the Kundalini experience. You just have this different operating frequency of, of your brain and different suites of tools and different things that it can do. But that's why. That's the reason why, um, as far as we can tell, this um, whole culture was radiating the science of consciousness, and they were giving you visual aids to know where to focus your energy when you're doing these um, kundalini and yoga exercises. Hmm. Well, I think I think too to to um, to your question to astral. I mean, wh- how you know, how are they showing where this was in the brain and the third eye and stuff like that? I mean, one of the the revelations of the first Magical Egypt series. Um, was you know John Anthony West showing everybody Schwaller de Lubitsch's work at the Temple of Luxor, um, and how the Temple of Luxor was laid out in the blueprint of the human body, and more specifically how the Holy of Holies in the Temple, the place where the priest goes to you know quote unquote communicate with God, sits right in the place of the middle of the brain, or sits right where the third ventricle is, and that in that Temple of Luxor. Um, they would have they would have this from Karnak to from a temple in Karnak to the temple in Luxor. They would move this golden statue of the the Egyptian god Amun, who has a rat a ram's head, and they would have this ceremony moving him from Karnak, moving him to Luxor, and um, they would take this statue of Amun, this ram-headed god, into the holy of holies. And as we talk about in, in season two, the, there's parts of the brain that have like the, the shape of the hippocampus, and and there's this ram's horn shape to the brain and there's even parts of the uh, hippocampus referred to as amun's horn um and interestingly enough the word the name uh, amun means the hidden god so the, the egyptian god amun is the is the hidden god and they they have a, a temple uh you know where the holy of holies where you take where the priest goes to communicate with amun with the hidden god and that place is representative of the of the third ventricle of the brain of the middle of the brain so, and that, I mean, that's from, you know, that's from Schwaller's work and that's from, um, you know, John Anthony West showing all of us that, showing us Schwaller's work. So, um, and then you tie that into the Eye of Horus and as Chance was saying, like the Eye of Horus, when looked at the, you know, from the side, from a sagittal view, it really does show you kind of the, the not only the diencephalon, but the ventricles of the brain and the ventricles of the, of the brain are where there is these sort of um, cisterns of, of cerebral spinal fluid. And that goes into the sort of the physiology of this of, of of the brain and how that that fluid bathes the brain inside and out. So when looking at you know the temple structure and through Schwaller's work, you realize that, that and that was one of the most profound things from that first Magical Egypt series for myself as as just a person who was just watching that series was the notion that temples were being laid out in the form of the human body. And the the whole process was to go through the beginning of the temple and to get into the Holy of Holies as you're walking through this sort of larger symbolic version of the body. And then you go to the central point of the, 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 to the Holy of Holies and to the center of the brain. And it's a dark room, dark stone room. And you're sort of in a way, walking through your own body and walking through, having a sort of a, a walking visual visualization of yourself centering yourself in the center of the brain, and you're supposed to go talk to the hidden God in that in that holy of holies, you know. And so there's this 
there's this symbolism of the ram horns and and the eye of Horus that 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 shows that that in our in our opinion I think other people out there too that that this was re- representing brain anatomy I'm sure there would be people out there that would disagree with that but I think that it can, we can make a pretty strong case that that's that's what they were showing and and in mm-hmm. other cathedrals and in other temples it is a tradition that the holy of holies is representative of uh, the brain in Hindu temples, the temples are laid out in the form of a human body, and the Holy of Holies again is right where the the the, the middle of the brain is. So, um, again, it just it, in my opinion, it just shines a light on this idea that these temples were consciousness gymnasiums or places to go exercise higher states of consciousness in in the body, and they did it sort of brilliantly by making you kind of walk through this giant representation of yourself. So you kind of had an as above, so below type of moment. Um, mm constantly while you're going into this temple and you know in your brain you're you're thinking about you know the third ventricle you're thinking about the middle of your brain then you're walking to this temple where you're you're supposed to go to where this place is represented in the temple and have this experience you know and it's it's the same thing when you look at michelangelo's painting of you know the creation of adam on the on the sistine chapel ceiling that god is communicating to adam through the middle of the brain and so there's this and regardless of what your thoughts are about god or divinity or those terms it's just there's this artwork showing that there is gnosis or divinity associated with the middle of the brain, and and it's seen in temples, it's seen in cathedral cathedrals and 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 different structures throughout human civilization. So it's once you start seeing that symbolism, you start seeing it in other places, you know. Yeah, I mean it, it, it's amazing the link to the chakra system, especially in the temple of Luxor. I mean and. And how connected all of that is, and, and there's also something to said, be said about that period of going underground and being in the absence of all light and activating this sort of DMT, you know, molecule in the brain. Because you know, if you if you have dreams when you're dreaming, that's that's what's happening in your pineal gland. I mean, scientists think. I mean, we haven't isolated exactly where the brain, where in the brain it comes from, but. Um, you know, hypothetically, it it does come from the pineal gland. So when you're when you're as you're dreaming, you know, th- this is what's being released in your brain is DMT. And you know, so so my next question, I guess, would be would be psychedelics. Like, what are these? What what if these these magical brews like ayahuasca, DMT, such as that? How does that affect this 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 inner working of this this sort of mystical connection to this higher consciousness or um, this inner inner standing that we have. Brad, you want to try it? Um, sure. Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, psychedelics are, are, are one of the most fascinating things on the on the planet. I think literally. I, I, I mean, the fact that there is a fungus that grows out of the earth and you eat it and it makes you see these complex geometric patterns and it makes you uh have these these sort of feelings of of much bigger holistic viewpoints of yourself and the world and it makes you feel you know connected to to the, the wholeness of everything um is is unbelievably fascinating you know it's one thing to you know take some fermented grapes and it gets you loopy and it gets you drunk you know but it's another thing if you eat this fungus and it's not really getting you drunk it's it's taking you to other states of consciousness. I mean, that's the idea of that just being a drug or just another sort of standard, like high or a good time at a party is, is sort of a misconception about the power of these things is that it, it somehow triggers the brain into these higher states of functionality. And, and they've done studies with uh, LSD where they show, um, 
brain imaging, where there's more interconnectivity between places of the brain where they don't normally communicate. And, and you know, and, and that, the corpus callosum, that part of the brain that connects the two hemispheres, uh, Ema Gilchrist talks about how that part of that bridge between the two hemispheres is actually more inhibitory than it is than it allows communication. So I think psychedelics unlock a lot of those inhibitory uh, inhibited pathways between different parts of the brain. And that's why you start making connections and start having analogies and thoughts about things in ways that you didn't, because all of a sudden the network of your brain is communicating with, with other parts that maybe it doesn't normally speak to. And psychedelics are a catalyst for that. You know, it's it, one of the best things I think I ever heard about psychedelics was, you know, they're really just an amplifier for consciousness. And, you know, and, and as Chance and I are both guitar players. And you think about that, if you have an acoustic guitar, and then, and then all of a sudden people came along and electrified it. Think how much amplification did for the instrument of the guitar and how much it basically changed, became created rock and roll and all, you know. So that notion that psychedelics are really just an amplifier for consciousness, I thought was one of the best analogies for that because it really is just taking your consciousness and plugging it into an amp. And now all of a sudden you have this massive, more sound, you have all these other plateaus and all these other options to you that you can that you have available. So I think... You know, I think pretty early on and across shamanic traditions, human beings figured out which of these plants, you know, cause these effects. And, And I think, you know, couple that with you take those psychedelics and then you go sit in a like i said in the king's chamber of the pyramid hmm. and it's totally black and totally dark and you've been training yourself to lay still and lay in that 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 place without falling asleep and your consciousness is now amplified even more than it would have been if you weren't if you don't take psychedelics and you go sit in a dark room your consciousness is gonna you're gonna start visualizing and seeing things so you know add this crazy amplification to that experience and you all of a sudden have this sort of higher functionality brain functionality and you have parts of the brain that are that are communicating in ways that they weren't and you have your you have your your brain showing you things that you didn't see before you know it's 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 truly fascinating and, and i'm glad that psychedelics are getting more support in the world today for like dealing with you know post-traumatic stress disorder and depression and people that have you know f- you know fatal cancers and stuff like that but really i think hopefully we can get past not only just the benefits for for you know health issues, but for people that don't have health issues, and are just exploring consciousness. I mean, that's that's really where that the rocket ship of uh, you know psychedelics, for in my opinion, is. It's great if it can help people with their illnesses or their sicknesses or their anxiety or their depression. But it, once you're beyond those things, it, it it just becomes this you know this launching pad for for contemplation and for thought. And it's. It's. I think human beings have, have figured that out since. You know, when you go into caves, that where there's all the cave artwork uh, throughout human history, a lot of that art is deep down into the parts of the cave. It's not like we're necessarily right in the front. It's deep into the dark parts of the cave. So imagine you've taken a bunch of psychedelics and you're in pitch black darkness, and you just have that X Men's danger room. This whole virtual world opens up in front of you, and you know you start seeing things and and if you're able you can retain some of the information you see in those states and bring it back with you and go hey i think i figured out how to like sustain the fire that you know we made or i think i think i figured out if we carved this knock this rock into a into a circular shape it becomes a usable tool you know i think epiphanies are, are, are psychedelics are sort of this launch pad for epiphany and contemplation hey i've got a, a bit to add um First of all, shout out to Les Paul. Shout out to Les Paul for electrocuting the guitar. That was amazing, Brad. I'm wiping the tears from my eyes for what Brad said. 
so um, the uh, the pineal gland and DMT in particular is a really interesting thing in this discussion because um, for people who've read Rick Strassman's book, the DMT, uh, DMT, sure. the spirit molecule, he talks about a really interesting thing about the pineal gland and about DMT that your your pineal gland, for the most part, produces DMT your whole life uh, under extreme moments, almost like adrenochrome, under moments of extreme torture and anguish, uh, your pineal gland will release some DMT. That's why, like, American Indians used to do that thing where they suspend themselves from hooks under their breast muscles. Um, and the interesting, because the pain, extreme pain, produces a DMT drip and it, it creates a visionary, uh, you really have to be dedicated to go down that road. Mm. But, um, um, and I've never done it. I can't say that I've done it, uh, but apparently that works. But anyway, there's a really interesting thing that you see in Egypt. The, there's a this old Sufi um, lineage, which is actually a really interesting uh, mystery school in itself, the Sufis. But the Sufis um, have these people called whirling dervishes, and it's a thing that's, uh, I believe, unique to the um, you know Arab cultures. Lands, uh, you spin. These guys spin. Everyone's seen a whirling dervish. The reason that they spin is that, oddly enough, uh, a geometric coincidence that might not be a coincidence. The pineal gland is in the exact axial center of your body. So when you spin, you're actually doing centripetal, I forget, centripetal or centrifugal, but whichever one is from the inside out, mm -hmm. the yang part. When you spin, you're actually using centripetal force to pull DMT out of your pineal gland wow. uh, and give yourself a trip that way. So it's interesting that it's exactly in our center and we're, you know, maybe we should all be spinning more often, but, um, in the moment, so your, your pineal glands making DMT your whole life. I'm in the middle of the Asian jungle right now and it is raining like I've never seen before. So <laughs> if it's making you have to pee, that's normal. Don't feel that about it. <laughs> anyway. Um, so your pineal gland saves up DMT your whole life. And then when you die, the very last thing that happens to you is your pineal gland releases this flood of DMT and you undergo this hallucinatory experience. Anybody who's ever done DMT has a weird, strong hallucinogen, but it's there for a specific purpose. And it seems to be it opens this door that allows you to exit your incarnate meat wagon, um, your, you know, your physical body. Mm -hmm. And so, the it, it plays a really crucial role in moving whatever that intangible thing that is you um, out of your body. And when you're born, uh, when you're born, there's a massive DMT drip uh, from both mother and child that kind of creates this lifelong bond. You're not a male or female in utero until day 49 when your pineal gland differentiates. And it, the first thing it does is does this big um, release of DMT. And it seems like that might be where the soul moves into the body on day 49 in utero, because on that day, you're either a male or female and you were, you were neither one up until that moment. Wow. And so, um, in, so the other thing is this, that your brain, um, the old kind of reductionist materialist model is that your brain produces consciousness and everything you are and everything you know, and everything you remember is all in your brain somewhere. But the other model that is kind of the thinking behind ancient Egypt and the thinking we adopt in the show is that consciousness exists completely outside of the body and your brain acts more like a radio and you tune into this frequency that, and you participate in consciousness, this universal consciousness and it comes through you and it's individuated in you, but it's more like a subscription service, like a radio and your pineal gland kind of acts like the, uh, the channel changer. There's these interesting crystal structures in the pineal gland that works sort of like the electric guitar that we talked about. But that 
the idea that hallucinogens will change the radio frequency that you're subscribed to. So suddenly you're getting alien voices, you're communing, you're communing with strange creatures that have nothing to do with you. In fact, in Rick Strassman's book, he was visited at some point by very high up uh, Buddhist monks who told him you have to stop doing that because you're screwing around with the machinery of incarnation. Some of these people are having visions of 300 lifetimes in the future when everyone is an intelligent bee or a, you know, a sentient lizard or something. And, um, and it's just not natural in the scheme of things to mess around with this DMT, this fine, strange structure in your head that allows you to move out of your body when it's time to die. So hallucinogens, I mean, my point is this, that hallucinogens seem to change the channel that your brain is, um, checking into and that's why sometimes you get these visions or voices or you're communing with things that are clearly not human in some cases vastly intelligent vastly strange alien hp lovecraftian entities and i don't know what to say about them except they're out there and when you start playing with the radio in your head you can start tuning in some far far away things and uh, anyway, so that's the seed of the soul. And the third eye, by the way, Rene Descartes and philosophers all through um, the ages have been saying the pineal gland or the diencephalon is the seed of the soul. And uh, one of the things that Brad talks about in the show that was so interesting is it really is significant because it's a nexus of systems. The third eye and the diencephalon uh, are the nexus where your circulatory body, you know, in the tarot, you have... Um, uh, earth, water, air, and fire. And you have one of those bodies that correspond. You have your meat, muscle body. You have your liquid body that is your emotions and your lymph glands and your blood that, you know, when you cry, water comes out, liquid comes out, liquid emotion. And then um, the air is your lower mental state and your air, uh, your lungs and stuff like that. And then fire is the electrical synaptic body, which is your nervous system. All four of those bodies, and then consciousness, of course, would be the fifth element that binds it all together. But these things all hinge, like the, the linchpin of all your bodies is your pineal gland. So Rene Descartes and a bunch of other people have always suggested that this, the I am, your sense of self or your sense of who you are, is in the third eye. Interesting that the I, the word I, E-Y-E, and the word I, like myself, the letter I, Mm-hmm. It might be the third I actually means the third me, which is mm. seems to be the case. So you have three distinct voices in your head. One of them comes from each hemisphere, and the other one, this third voice, no one's exactly sure where it comes from, but that might be the third I. So anyway, the seed of the soul, where does the soul reside? It seems to be not just the diencephalon, but the interaction of the diencephalon and the blood and the lymph. Brad goes into quite a bit of detail about the neuroendocrinal system and the whole science of neuroendocrinology, which is just specifically studying how these bodies interact and how it's not just one thing that causes consciousness, but it's the interaction of the blood, the ventricles, and the electrical mm. system and, and, and the body. So once again, these um, fantastically descriptive schematics in the artwork show you all these things. And that idea of the crossover where all the bodies meet, the nexus point is echoed all over Egypt. When you see statues, um, they frequently have their arms crossed, their crook and flail crossed. And the idea of the crossing signifies this part of the brain where this is where biology becomes thought or where, where body becomes mind, the crossover from the material to the intellectual or, or um, you know, from the material to the non-material, this crossover is extremely significant for them. And it seems to take place at this um, place at the pineal or, or the diencephalon. I think too, um, to add to, to, to add to that, one of the other uh, important people involved with Magical Egypt for the, the second series was Gary Osborne. And Gary Osborne's work goes into a lot of 
of that uh, aspect of this kind of holy trinity of the the pituitary, the thalamus, and the and the pineal, and just that sort of bigger complex of of of, of you know endocrine glands and and neurological uh, neurophysiology of those of those glands. Um, and so I, I, he you know his work was a huge help for myself, and 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 so his there's there's I can't remember which episodes that are in the in season two and stuff like that that goes more into Gary's work, but Gary touches on this stuff a lot too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's such a, anyone who knows me knows that ayahuasca is a huge, huge part of my life. And if there, I think if there's anything that's going to save humanity, it's going to be plant medicine and, and plants are infinitely smarter than we are. And, and I'm not so sure about humans, you know, I'm not sure, <laughs> I'm not sure where we're headed right now, but, um, you know, it leads me to think about so much and, and a huge part of magical Egypt is, is Kundalini and, and, I mean, and the other thing, there are two things in my life that have changed the trajectory of my life forever. The first is Kundalini and the second is Ayahuasca, those two things. But I happened to suffer a Kundalini activation a couple decades ago. I was just a, a kid in college, really, and and I, I had no idea, had no idea what was happening to me. I thought I was completely insane. I still think I'm a little bit crazy, but I mean, that's, you know, that's up for, up for, up for debate. I, I just... You know, there there's something about Kundalini itself as this this movement through the chakra system, as this this sort of represented as this sort of serpent that that moves up the energy body, and and you know, I loved 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 that in I, I guess you'd say the third season of 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 Magical Egypt that you put you guys put so much effort and time into covering this aspect of the, the human experience. And, you know, so I'd, I'd really like to start, you know, talking about openly more about Kundalini. I wish, you know, I bet there are people out there that have had either, you know, minor Kundalini eruptions or, you know, even full-blown activations that, you know, nowadays will probably land you in a mental facility somewhere if you talk openly about. So, so I, I thought it was, you know, such a gift that you guys, you know, were offering to to people that that could be going through this. I mean, nowadays you you can get on Google and there's you know there's Kundalini yoga and stuff like that. But but 20 years ago for me, you know, none of that stuff was available. It took a long time for me to figure out there was even a word for what I was going through. So um, so chance. So I, I I know that. I mean, what's your take on Kundalini and 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 your perspective on that? It is the strangest thing that will ever happen to a person. It, I, we've talked about it as being kind of a second puberty where for a lot of people, especially Westerners, absolutely out of the blue with no indication that it was coming, no indication of what it is. Uh, there's other cultures that are um, you know, kind of ho-hum about this, like classical Vedic uh, Hindu cultures and the Buddhist cultures. It's absolutely part of the you know, the part of the joy of life. But in the West, for whatever reason, and there's a whole conversation there uh, that tends to go kind of dark, we're not allowed to talk about it. We don't know what it is. And it, uh, we've talked about this quite a lot. I think it is the most important experience that a person can have. It really is literally like a second puberty where you're not really a complete person until this happens. And it is the goal of spiritual aspirants in the East to achieve this thing that is sort of like a metaphysical orgasm. It's like something that's not in your physical body has this just sudden and rapid transformation into something else, like 
awakening. Um, if you've ever seen puppies, when puppies are born, they're born with their eyes closed. And at a certain point over time, if everything goes right, their eyes will eventually open and they'll be much more functional and they don't need to, you know, suckle on their mother and stay in the, in the whatever. And so of these higher bodies that we have, these electromagnetic psycho-spiritual bodies that Alex Gray, you know, the artist Alex Gray has done a fantastic job of painting what each one of these bodies look like, your electrical body, your light body, your mental ideological bodies and these higher bodies that Eastern cultures know about, but Western cultures absolutely don't know about. And so it's like this higher body that was born like a puppy with its eyes closed and its different sensory organs um, closed. Some people that stays that way and it stays inert and dead in them their whole lives because they've never had a catalytic moment. They've never gone after it. Um, Xavier, you said something that I think was incredibly important. That, like Xavier, my own uh, Kundalini experience happened after a period of 120 days of abstaining from sex. Um, anything over 90 days, if you can get yourself over 90 days, you're in the running for having a Kundalini experience. If you have the slightest uh, knowledge of yoga and meditation and breath work and it's all out there it's 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 there's nothing hidden about this except the idea that it's natural and it's inevitable and that it's something that may turn out you know the position of the earth in the milky way galaxy and the position of the milky way galaxy in the universe we travel through areas of more and less electric electrical magnetic uh, density and it might well have an effect on our nervous systems where in these long cycles of time we have these rises and falls of, of, of intelligence and spirituality over time. And we're relatively in kind of a dark age. Um, anybody that knows about the yugas, mm -hmm. it's been charted for a long time, the rise and fall of intelligence and spiritual capability having something to do with the stars that I don't entirely understand. But during those times where it's more electrically conducive, it's sort of like when we go out of spring and into, I mean, out of uh, winter and into spring, suddenly these blossoms start blossoming. In the human race, these strange blossoms or popcorn kernels that start popping are human beings on the nervous systems. And in the West, for some reason, it seems like we might be undergoing a collective awakening, like a puberty. You know, puberty for a lot of people hits you totally out of the blue and you don't know what's happening until after it's happened. And suddenly your interests and all these things are completely different because you've just gone through puberty and now suddenly you have this biological imperative that, that wasn't there before. So um, it reminds me of, there's this interesting story in the Bible, Nebuchadnezzar uh, was told by one of his advisors that his throne was going to be usurped by a uh, firstborn that was about to be born. And so Nebuchadnezzar was so scared of holding on to his power that he ordered all the firstborns of the country to be killed. And I'm wondering if this inevitable onset of, of Kundalini in our culture is actively being suppressed. And right at this time where we're all coming online, suddenly this big global thing happens where everybody has to go and get a bunch of shots uh, for this thing. That does tend to, uh, it seems to suppress that uh, activity, just like drinking a bunch of, you know, soda. I won't mention a brand, but any kind of soda that has um, all kinds of processed corporate foods have these chemicals that specifically neuter or castrate your spiritual apparatus that cal calcify the pineal gland, kill the magnetic fields. Alcohol does that too, by the way. So anyway, there are this, it's sort of like, it's almost as if there is an industrial war or an active effort to keep us all from going through this transition. And a few people have gone through it already, and that's how we know it's coming. But it does seem to be some force or interest that has removed this information from our books, from our culture. And why aren't we allowed to know about this thing that is literally the most important thing that can happen to someone?
I feel like Astro's I bought an eight timer. I bought Astro's an eight timer. By the way, rising I'm... right now. Wow. I I have a question. Just so a lot is mentioned um, in the series about lighting the lamp, uh, activating yeah, the third eye. So like for this process on a very basic level, stuff that we could do in terms of everyday visualization, stuff like that. Like how can people get get going in that direction? Um, what Xavier said, there's a really interesting bit of protocols. Um, I personally love this guy, Mantak Chia, who wrote a book called Cultivating Male Sexuality. And it's all about how if you think of yourself as a battery, Brad um, should talk about this in a minute. Brad came up with an ingenious metaphor that like the car, you need gasoline, you need oil, and you need a spark to create ignition. So the big part of starting a car is your battery has to be charged. And so the first step in approaching a Kundalini thing, charge your battery by withholding your sexual energy. And if you can do it for a month, especially if you can do it for three months, you suddenly have this full battery that's waiting for a spark. And if you can get this thing to ignite, then that is the Kundalini process. Uh, And it's uh, it's the ultimate aspiration of yoga. So if you really want to do it the traditional way, you can go to a yoga class and you got to find a real yoga teacher that's advanced enough, which might be a bit of a challenge. And you may end up having to go to India. A lot of Kundalini people end up moving to uh, India because it's you know it's it's a lot more respected tradition there. Brad, what was the thing? You're, Brad had an amazing metaphor of gas, oil, and spark that were all necessary components for the ignition of Kundalini. Yeah, and I, well, I think too, like. Um, one of the, the the main things that I learned in this in my own little research project here was that, um, again, this this whole the necessity of the 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 quality of the physiology of the body, the sort of the this ocean of fluids that's in our body, the sea, you know, the, these these rivers, these this fluidity. Um, if you can purify and refine that fluid, um, you are going to have a richer. Uh, uh, fuel that bathes the brain inside and out. And it also waters the garden. There's that story in the Bible about a river that goes out of the garden Eden and becomes four heads. If you look at the, I think it's the gray matter going down the spinal cord, it has these four dorsal, it has four heads. There's two dorsal heads and there's two other, and they look kind of like a, like a four leaf clover. But it, my opinion, that's what, what that passage in the Bible is talking about. This river that goes out and waters the body. That's the brainstem that goes out of your, uh, you know, out of your, the bottom of your brain and goes in through this nervous system and your whole body and it waters this whole thing. So there's this idea that if you can refine the physiology of the body, you will get this better fuel. And, and, uh, what these Taoists in China were doing, which, um, Joseph Needham, who was a, a, a famous uh, British scientist who wrote this whole book on one of his books on, on this subject about what, uh, these Taoists in China were doing, is that they were constantly kind of refining the fluid of the body over and over and cycling it through through the body, and some of that has to deal with uh, sexual fluids and that sort of thing. But on a on a much sort of more basic scale, there is this whole story of virtue versus vice, and 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 the stories of the seven deadly sins. You know that when you give in to want and desire, hormones are released from your endocrine glands and they go into the bloodstream, and that kind of taints the bloodstream. It taints the fuel of, of, of your body. So there's all these works of art of, of Hercules at the crossroads between virtue and vice and these different artists who have, de- who have depicted it. But these stories are also found in, 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 in different mythological and re- religious tales, and people oftentimes associate them with morality, that you know you should be a good person, you shouldn't give in to the seven deadly sins, you shouldn't give in to lust and greed 
and, and sloth and envy and pride because you want to be a good moral person and that's going to get you to heaven, right? But if you take away, if you don't focus that on, on, on morality and you understand that when you give into desire, when you give into your wants, when you give into greed and you, when you give into sexual lust, when you give into all these things, it alters the physiology of your body. And so part of the practice was not so much the retention of sexual fluids, but it was controlling, being in control of the kingdom of yourself, being in control. That's sort of why the Egyptians had this, every pharaoh had to unify upper and lower Egypt. They had to be the king of the kingdom. And that's not so much about a literal kingdom or a little geography. It's about the individual, that if you are in control of the kingdom of your body, and you don't allow your emotions to control you. You don't allow yourself to go into anger. You don't allow yourself to go into extreme states of, you know, the opposite end of extreme ecstatic and happiness. And and you are balanced. That that is going to change the physiological makeup of your body. And it's not just about morals and being a good person and going to heaven and not being, you know, a, a little devil and, and and being a devious little person who gives into all your wants and desires. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you will be a better person if you follow those for for the morality aspect. But there is this whole notion that. Um, you have to kind of be in control of, of, of those emotions and those states because they release hormones from the endocrine glands. It releases when you get, like I said, think about like a crime of passion. You can kill somebody in the heat of passion or, or you know, when you're lusting for somebody, you, you know, you, you, your, heart, your heart's pumping with blood. These things are happening when you're in states of fear, you know, you know adrenaline is being released and, and all these things are being released into the bloodstream. So what people at Adepts figured out was that there was a way to control the physiology of the body. And it's sort of kind of what Wim Hof is, 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 is sure. sort of doing, you know? Um, so for the average person, and you talk about in a day-to-day existence, who's going to work and sitting in traffic and going to a job and they have kids and they have, they live in this world that we're, we all live in, that's we're surrounded by distraction and noises and all these things. I think it's really hard for modern people to, to try and get to these states that our ancestors got to. And and even I listened to the podcast a little bit that you did, Xavier, with Wim, and he was saying, like, you know, because of what he's figured out, you can access these states without having to go through all the hard work that all these ancient sages and adepts did. And I would challenge him a little bit on that because we don't know what the states were that they got sure. to and that if he's if he's achieving the same level as they did. So I don't think there's necessarily a quick fix to this. I think you do all of the sort of mystery school traditions and these esoteric traditions, it's about discipline and it's about hard work. It's one of the reasons why I'm not trying to do this myself. I have no discipline. <laughs> I, I like being a hedonist. I like giving into <laughs> all my wants and my desires. Um, so for the people who really truly would want to pursue this, you know, that's why there's monks that they remove themselves from society and they go to a, a, a monastery in the mountains and they don't surround, they make sure that they're not surrounded by any of these temptations and they spend like 12 hours meditating and, you know, and they do this, they do the work, you know, so for the average person, you could probably sit quietly in your home and, and have progress and do some sort of yoga, some sort of meditation and visualizations. And it will, of course, benefit you, you know, everybody who would go to a if you went to the gym every day and just exercised to some degree, it's going to benefit you, you know, but you're not training the way that say Olympic athletes are training, you know? So it's not to say that people shouldn't do the work because anything you do is going to benefit you and it's going to help you. But again, I think that the priestcraft of these ancient civilizations and stuff like that were like the Olympic athletes of consciousness and they devoted their entire existence to this and they, and they, they, they were wholly disciplined on it and they didn't have all the distractions of the modern world. Um, they had distractions from their own time, the same way that human beings, you know, because we're still all human beings. But I think I think it's one of the things about this that it's it's something that's available to people um, 
but just like any skill set out there is that there's going to be a level of people that are not only naturally inclined and have natural abilities, but have the ambition and the, and the discipline to, to really seek this stuff out, you know, but for the average person, you can do all kinds of things that will benefit you and, and, and make and, and get you further along the way, you know, but it's, it's, you know, like I said, it's, 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 it's one of those things where I think a lot of people want to achieve spiritual enlightenment immediately, you know, and they want to, they want to get there quickly and they want to have it happen. And they want to say, me too. I, I reached the mountaintop. I saw the light and I saw these things and they're super quick to want to find like the, the way to get there. But I think the true adepts and the true sages got there through the, the long, narrow path. It's real difficult to stay on. And you're going to fall off it, you know? So they, it's, it's a, it's a, a, a disciplined school for, 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 the people who really want to truly seek the, the the peak of the mountaintop. It might also have to do with the work you did in a previous life, that it might be you have to work on this for four or five successive incarnations before uh, something happens that you kind of prime the pump. Um, by the way, in the 1800s, like right now, it's really hard to find actual explicit books about the diencephalon and how to open the third eye. But in the 1800s, it was an absolute renaissance of this information. And one of the things that happened when the collapse in the 30s and all the old school books were withdrawn and they were replaced by these new kind of quote unquote sanctioned school books, a lot of uh, esotericism and occultism absolutely weeded out of society in this moment when all the school books changed over. Um, People don't know this story. In the in the depression, the schools were all failing, and so one of the moneyed people, Rockefeller or Rothschild, I think it was Rockefeller, went to all the schools and said, "If you teach out of our books, then we'll bail you out and we'll help you through the depression. And if you want to stick with your, you know, your uh, occulty, homemade, folksy uh, stuff, good luck to you. Uh, we're not going to give you any money. But anyway, through a, in a very short period of time, school books all changed out to these new school books that had a modified history and absolute." Um, expungement, expulsion, uh, erasing of all of these occult traditions. But if you're interested, look at some of those, because on the internet now you can get digital copies of these books from the 1800s. I have a couple of things that just, it seemed forbidden. It feels like it's wrong to even own these books because they're so explicit. And for some reason, um, Brad and I often joke about the fact that every time this knowledge gets out into the public arena, civilization has to be destroyed and started over again, like running a program over and over again. We have to start again without this knowledge. And um, it does seem like it was actively withdrawn from our society. But now you can get you can get some of those old books from the 1800s. Brad has a, who's given me a great reading list of things he's discovered where they're quite explicit about these things. And just it's an interesting story that they've all been withdrawn and they just weren't very good at completely withdrawing it. I feel like you can only talk about these things when there's no gatekeepers around and because of all the other really active misinformation and social reshaping that's happening right now. All the gatekeepers that used to protect this stuff and would shoot people like me and Brad down and our, you know, our mentors, uh, John West and Swallow Lubix. There was this vigilant, active resistance to this knowledge being disseminated in public. Mm -hmm. But all of a sudden, there's this new big lie that everyone's involved in. And there's, you know, there's so many different kinds of propaganda being spread right now that the gatekeepers seem to be distracted. And we were able to sneak the football through the goals during this moment where all the gatekeepers were distracted. And so we're trying to bring these traditions back. But for people who really want to feast on this stuff, go back and look at occult and esoteric um, books and teachings from the 1800s. Uh, Manly P. Hall, 
uh, and the, the PRS, the Philosophical Research Institute, is a fantastic source for some of these old forbidden books. And they're quite explicit. So if you're really interested, take a trip through the uh, Manly P. Hall Library and you'll find quite a lot, um, quite a lot of very explicit uh, instruction. You know that that point when you're watching like a horror movie and 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 there's this there's this moment like there where this guy comes in and he kind of warns the people that are going moving forward and they're like he gives them this big fat warning. You know, that moment. This is that moment. So if you're if you've listened so far and you think <laughs> Kundalini is some sort of a magic pill, it is not. And I would highly, highly recommend that you do not pursue this path unless you're you're ready to do that like you're ready to accept the the weight of what kundalini brings and it's it's hard to say exactly what that will be for you in your path and it's different for everyone but um it's it's not it's it's not a game it's not a toy and and a it's huge, a one-way turnstile it's a huge. one-way turnstile and once you walk through it you can't yeah, walk back that's it and i mean it's just a huge cautionary note i i really think I feel like I feel like it would be better off, at least in my experience. Like if if I was like a fifty year old man, I had everything settled in my life before everything was just open. The the psychic doors of of perception were open for me and blasted open. I was like you know like a rocket ship, and and I I I wasn't I was not ready. I was not ready for it. And you know I've. I've learned to live with it now and I can, I can feel my Kundalini right now, you know, and there, there is a very, there, there is a very romantic sort of notion about connecting with that part of yourself. And, but there is, there is no easy path to enlightenment as, as the Buddhists say, like, you know, before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water after enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. (laughs) So yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for both you and Brad, and your work and especially on Kundalini and um, you know, there, there's so much to be said and, and there's, there was something that I noticed you covered that you guys covered in the third, the third season, which was that this is not just reflected in Egypt. Like there, there seems to be this, this regard to this, this sacred knowledge throughout many cultures all over the planet. They're, they're covering this in their own little way. They're, they're kind of, flexing their their sort of spiritual you know uh, connection to reality so so i mean what's your perspective on this brad chance what do you think and well chance and i have have talked about this before and i think um you know some of the people who are magical egypt fans were maybe not necessarily turned off but a little confused when when some of the episodes left egypt and you know uh started going to, to Thailand and Angkor Wat and places like that. And, and, you know, I think the, the more that you look at, I know for myself, Egypt was sort of a jumping off point and, you know, you look at that and then you start seeing these, these things everywhere. And then it's so, it starts becoming not just so much about Egypt. You start becoming about human beings and it just starts becoming about this recurring theme that you see in all human civilizations throughout time. And so it, it, it is. It's, it, Egypt is certainly fascinating, and 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 has this this hold and and this this mystery and all this stuff to it, and it's a great place to start. But once you're there, you start seeing the things that you saw in Egypt. You start seeing them elsewhere, and you're like, all right, this, this isn't just about Egypt anymore. This is about human beings. You know, it's it's about you know that the missing link is is us. You know, it's 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 that 
this is a unifying aspect of, of, of humanity. And that's been my interest in this the whole time is trying to show what human beings have known as a species about consciousness and higher states of consciousness throughout time, regardless of what civilization, what time, what, whatever, whatever was happening, just trying to take a, a larger scope, a holistic look at what do, what have human beings um, shown, uh, what have they known about consciousness and what have they, how have they shown it in their artwork and in, in their, in their architecture and their mythology and their religious scriptures and stuff like that. So it becomes this, it becomes so much bigger than just Egypt. There was a um, part of the show. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, what Brad said was absolutely true. People were wondering why um, is magical Egypt now looking at cultures other than Egypt? And one of the things that is a big part of any research into ancient Egypt, I'm surprised more people haven't cottoned on to this, that Egypt happened so long ago and there's so much about it that we literally have no idea i mean we barely read the writing and if anybody who's ever read the wallace budge translation of egyptian uh, hieroglyphs it's nonsense 90 percent absolute gibberish and nonsense and it's not that the egyptians were idiots and they talked in gibberish it's just we don't understand how to read what they were saying and so a lot of that would have forever been a mystery because it's like reading a book with lots of pages torn out. But then you find out that if you go to the Vedic uh, cultures, the ancient, you know, Hindu culture stretches back as far as Egypt. And um, Hinduism at some point kind of transitioned into Buddhism. So at the Temple of Angkor Wat, it's been there for so long that it started out as a Buddhist temple. And you can gradually see um, the changeover to the uh, Buddhist deities rather than the. But what's interesting about both of them is that they aren't really a religion like we think about. It's a science, or, you know, if you understand that word, the Tao, it's a system of rules that will help you get through life or sort of working in conjunction with the order of the universe. And what's really interesting is that there's so much we can't know about Egypt, but once you understand that they're all talking about the same thing. Uh, another interesting point about why don't we get to know about this. It seems like all the old cultures worship this exact thing, and they all use the same cluster of symbols. They, also, they all use a risen snake, the symbol of the third eye, and usually triangles, you know, to denote a holy trinity. And so you can go to India, you can go to Buddhism, you can go to all these different cultures, and you see the exact same Kundalini stories being told. And the art direction's a little different, but because they all use these visual symbols, it's translingual. So you don't need to speak ancient, you know, Indian, or you don't need to speak, um, you know, the early Asian languages. The thing itself, the hieroglyphs and the symbols were created to speak to you translingually. From the right brain to the right brain of the recipient, your right brain works in images and associations. It doesn't even do language. So if you really wanted to speak to the right brain of someone or speak across time in a way that was bigger than language, you would use these symbols. And so what we realized is that there's all these missing things in Egypt that you can just go to ancient Hindu uh, Vedic lore. Or there's this amazing temple, Angkor Wat, which is this just literally a visual expression of the principles of uh, Hinduism. And it is full of all this symbolism, in particular the Nagas. The Nagas are these magical snakes, just like the risen cobra. The Nagas represent the flow of vitality through these, like through your veins, but also the flow of vitality through the earth as telluric energy. They're associated with fertility. They're associated with water. And everything that you say about the Nagas is what they say about the Ida and Pingala, these two snakes that are the channels that your Kundalini rises from. And, of course, the Sushumna in the middle. So um, when you go to Angkor Wat, it's a giant sculpture that's like a 3D book that teaches you about the Kundalini process. Also interesting at uh, Angkor Wat is this story of devas and asuras. And it's basically this war between angels and demons. And it is an amazing – and it's an allegory that will make your hair stand up because – 
what the story was is that deva uh, the asuras the demons used magic to make the devas to make the angels forget who they were they gave them amnesia and they lost their identity and they forgot that they were divine beings and they thought they were powerless to resist the horrible whims of the of the demons and uh, eventually the story writes itself because um vishnu comes down and removes the spell so they remember who they were and they can resume their timeless battle against evil. I've never heard a more touching, it almost makes me want to cry talking about it. Mm-hmm. We are the angels. We are the devas. And we've been tricked, magically a spell cast on us. So we don't remember our divinity. And that's why I think, think maybe we live in a culture that's keeping us from remembering we are not chumps. We're not slaves. We're angels, but we're under the guy, under the control of these devils, these uh, demons, and they are preventing us from remembering who we are, so that we don't remember to tap into this power that we have that could destroy the enemy. Um, interesting uh, legends about Kundalini being a weapon in in some cultures. That it was this fearsome, fearsome psychic weapon. And that might be another reason why it's suppressed today, because people who took the Kundalini practice far enough could actually do those Harry Potter energy weapon things. But it was fearsome, like an atom bomb, and it could get out of control and wipe out your army and their army if you weren't really tight with your practice. And so uh, fascinating, fascinating lore, and it bears out that that thing. We need to remember who we are, and we need to reconnect with our power. So anyway, if you look at... um, the Buddhist culture, if you look at the uh, structure of stupas in the Eastern uh, Eastern architecture, they use these same principles, and, and the Mayans, by the way, and the Chinese uh, ancient, ancient cultures, they all have these same obsession with building temples, with astrological alignments, the temples themselves are the books, and the story that these books communicate is the story of Kundalini. Even the Aztecs and Mayans have all these stories of are these um, statues that show a person with their head tied together, like union. Yoga, by the way, means union. The union of your left and right hemispheres to activate your third eye. That and the kundalini symbolism is present with slight changes in art direction in literally every ancient culture. So once again, it makes you wonder who the demons are that are keeping us from remembering this thing about ourselves. I think, I think too, the, you know, to go to this idea that, 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 story that James was talking about at Angkor Wat, the churning of the ocean of milk story, is the Sirius and the Divas are in a tug of war between on and on either side. And 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 you see this symbolism all the time. And again, this is virtue versus vice. On the very basic level, it's the angel on one of your shoulders, the devil on your other shoulder. And you see this symbolism time and time again. And you see it in in Egypt in the statue that chance is shown often in, in magical Egypt. And it's such a we've talked about it before. It's such a perfect example of this where Horus is on one side of the Pharaoh and Set is on the other. And they both have their hand on one side of his head. Um, and this is this idea of the balance of these two sides, this balance of, of virtue and vice. And the other recurring themes that you also see across cultures and civilizations is if you go to the esoteric sects of um, of any civilization, if it's you know like Mahayana Buddhists, uh, you know, or if it's the Dzogchen in Tibet, or the Gnostics, or you have the Brethren of Purity uh, in Islam, or you have um, the Zhuangzi, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but it's, it's in, in China, it was the school of dark learning. Um, they're all seeking the same thing. They're all seeking wisdom. They're all seeking, you know, Veda means to know, Rishi means seer, you know, Gnostic, Gnosis, this idea of knowledge. So you you, you constantly see that at, the, at these, these small groups that were disciplined and seeking out 
these philosopher sages um, were seeking out wisdom. They were seeking truth. And sometimes they would talk about being connected to that truth as being connected to God. And God was sort of this ultimate truth. But again, that would just be sort of a way to describe the ineffable thing that happens when you're face to face with knowing or, or gnosis or that sort of thing. So, and when you look at all of those, those these different sects of, of esoteric study, they all have sort of the same themes again. They have these stories of, uh, of rebirth, of some sort of ritual, which involves a purification ritual. It involves going into some sort of deprivation, some sort of psychedelic brew, and then they are reborn. And, and they come out of that experience, you know, like you guys were talking about Kundalini being a one-way turnstile. It's, it's, it's that idea of, of the Egyptian pyramids, you know, they're not a tomb but they are in a, in a figurative sense. They're a tomb for your previous self when you go in that, when you go through that turnstile. And then when you come through the other side, you are born again with the rising sun after this experience that you had. You know, So this idea of purification and rebirth in order to get to uh, states of knowing, in my, in my study through this, you just find it all over the place. You just keep seeing it all the time. So whatever these small groups of people were that were the philosophers of their time and age, they all kind of came to the same realizations and the same conclusions, which is they're all seeking wisdom. They're all seeking Sophia. And and that they all have the similar description of this idea of becoming face-to-face with gnosis or knowing and associating it with light. You know, talk about lighting the lamp. There's something that happens in the mind that has to do with some sort of process of light, some sort of bioelectricity, something that is going on that that is associated with and symbolic of of, of knowing, you know. And that this is you know, Moses's face shines like the sun, and Buddha is the light of the world. You know, there's 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 all this association with light and enlight, enlightenment, the light in the mind. You know, so there is some sort of scientific physiological thing going on in the brain and if you look through the recurring thread throughout human civilizations is that all these different groups got to the same place they were all seeking ma'at you know the egyptian goddess of truth they were all seeking sophia they were seeking wisdom and truth and 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 it seems like they figured out how to do that yeah like born by fire uh was I thought, and I loved the visuals, um, especially the overlays from um, the structures in the temples to the human body, I think was a very powerful way to explain it. And Chance, you also mentioned reincarnation. Um, did Do you think that the Egyptians had more of a knowledge of the process that would go into reincarnation, the afterlife, and like the point of reincarnation? Did they see it as like, being stuck in it or a way that there was able to be progressing through reincarnation to go through the next step. There's a really interesting thing about ancient Egypt that ancient Egypt is one of the few cultures that actually didn't believe in reincarnation. They were all about uh, living this life correctly. If you did, you had one lifetime to build this sort of spaceship inside of you, a Merkaba to, um, that was they talked about it as a solar boat that after you die your consciousness moves into this vehicle that travels with the stars and lives forever and could possibly rule in the next life but uh, and then if you didn't make it you were uh, literally destroyed like your soul was given to an animal that eats your soul uh, a crocodile so a very strange and brutal set of beliefs and it's the one way where egypt kind of uh, differs from the Vedic cultures and the Buddhist cultures where uh, reincarnation. I have to say I'm on the side of Plato with this, that our show is an example of something Plato called anamnesis, where 
in in his thinking, if you've lived through this succession of lives, and it may be hundreds of thousands of lives, there's some part of you that remembers everything that happened to you, but it's sort of partitioned uh, away from your conscious mind. So every once in a while, under extreme conditions like kundalini or drugs, you can tap into this knowledge that you've learned from hundreds of thousands of lifetimes. I was talking to Xavier that after my kundalini experience, I just tapped into what must have been several lifetimes worth of um, musical ability, uh, playing guitar and stuff, because I'm lazy and I don't work for anything that hard. But after my Kundalini experience, I just had this aptitude with guitar and I could play in a bunch of different styles that I'd never practiced. I had no reason to know how to do them. So it does seem to be that under unusual circumstances, you can connect with the things you've learned in previous lives. So Plato's idea of anamnesis is that you have this unbelievable wisdom of all the lessons you've learned and all the data you've learned over your hundreds of thousands of lives. And that certain people can either tap into it or even if you don't consciously acknowledge it, when you hear somebody talking about something, um, kind of Xavier and I got together this way, Brad and I got together this way, you hear the vibration or you hear certain words or images. Possibly the reason why people are so interested in Egypt is that we all remember seeing this iconography. Like it's one of the few things that's been around thousands of years. So maybe 200 of your previous lives, you've been looking at these symbols and looking at these structures and there's certain things that were so important to you last time or that will be so important to you next time that for reasons that you can't put into words, some part of your brain goes, oh yeah, pay attention to this. You're going to need to know this. This is important. And that's the voice of your anamnesis that's normally kept from you, but during critical moments of your life, it'll tap you on the shoulder and go, hey, uh, pay attention to what he's saying because that's um, the next part of your life is going to involve this information. So we see it with beautiful art, but we especially see it with old mystery iconography, old symbols from the occult, the tarot, and, and ancient Egypt is this giant talisman of occult knowledge and occult practice, frankly. And so we, a lot of people have this unreasonably weird and intense attraction to it, and it very well be might be that um, that is that phenomenon that you get these little leaks that you suddenly remember things or objects or events or symbols or people from uh, previous incarnations. I'm loving this, guys. I mean, I think everyone else, everyone listening right now, is absolutely just just uh, it's oozing there how much they love this. So this has been this is great. Um, you know, we've got we've got about thirty minutes left, so I just want to bring it down back down to earth a little bit, and uh, just just remind you guys, you know, let's let's start to wrap this together, wrap this into a nice little bow for for the people. Actually, let me let me take this a little bit backwards. You know, let's 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 go back. Um, and and talk about one of the pre-dynastic structures um it's a little bit difficult to explain just via audio and but but the the napta playa i mean this this is probably this this that you covered you guys covered was so fascinating to me that this you know the the like what 30,000 40,000 years old I mean, and and it it's able to it's like this this rock calendar but it's also it it's also like astronomically accurate and it even you can even measure they even knew i mean we're told that the ancients were like you know like 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 dumb but no it, they even knew the exact distance to the nearest to the light year of the nearest star in 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 our galaxy from from where we are so you know what what was going on here i mean uh brad chance like what do you guys think how, how, how did this happen how did you know how did we how, how did we get from a point of knowing so much to where we are now uh, I'll, I'll, let me hold on, let me jump in real fast because i know you could like um 
that's that's season one. So that's that's that'll be something more that that, that chance can can speak to in greater detail with. But I would the only thing I would add to that is it's something that people have said before, but I think it's something that is important is that um, when you don't have television, you know, you just and that the sun goes down and you're still awake and that night sky comes out. Oh, what what do we all do whenever you go camping and you're sitting out under the stars? Uh, you start thinking about things. You start looking up at the sky. You start thinking about you know you know the Earth and, and eternity and or, not eternity but infinity and distances. And you start thinking about all these. Looking up into the night sky causes this great contemplation. And so when you know here in the Pacific Northwest it gets dark at this time of year at like four, you know. So. Um, you had this this you know we all have this just distractions and televisions and you know, even even the time of books and things that you could do to fill your time but when you were you know four thousand years ago or whatever it was six thousand years ago what what did you have but your own mind and your own contemplation to be under the stars and to really to think about this stuff so i think that's a, a interesting basic component to to this stuff but um like i think chance could probably speak much more about the 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 what you were talking about from season one can and will. Uh, <laughs> the thing that uh, Xavier was talking about is this amazing structure in Egypt, but it's in um, it's in a part of Egypt that traditional Egyptologists won't even bother going to because what they say was this was arid desert for at least the last fifteen to twenty thousand years. So we're not even going to bother looking at it or entertaining anybody's ideas that have to do with this because we just know. Uh, and we're satisfied with the fact that there was nothing here and nothing could live here. And a lot of uh, Egyptologists aren't geologists, so they don't realize that the climate has completely changed and that Egypt used to be a fertile um, savanna. It used to be green and lush before the Ice Age. And so uh, there's this place called Napta Playa, and it's this strange part of the desert that looks like the surface of Mars. Um, if you had to hoax the Mars landing, Napta Playa would be a great place to do it because it looks like the surface of Mars. It's so old and it's so weather-beaten, but there's this little Stonehenge out there, and Egyptologists won't even address it. But it's there, and it's super old, and it's documented from, like, as early as people have been visiting Egypt. Sometimes you have to go through this desert to get to the cool stuff in Egypt. So people have been noticing this for a while. But it's a little Stonehenge, and if you uh, – but it's spread out over, a, like, a big area. And if you stand in the central circle that's a viewing circle, then you have these posts that are out in the desert. And there's hundreds of them, but in particular, there's three primary ones that I guess if you like would, were to light a little fire on top of this post and you were looking as the sun went down, these three posts in particular point to the place on the horizon where the three stars in Orion's belt will rise, which is pretty cool. And it's all aligned so that you can kind of tell the first day of the year because when the three stars of Orion's belt align and they're exactly aligned with these posts, you know that you're on uh, the the first day of the year but what's more interesting is when they first started studying this they couldn't figure out each of the posts is different distances away from you away from the viewing circle and so in magical egypt um season one there's this character thomas brophy who used to work at nasa amazing big brain um mathematician. He does satellite trajectories and that incredibly difficult math about how to catch the orbital field of this planet and slingshot to that planet. So the guy has a big brain. His head physically is like way too big for his body. He's like a weird little doll, like a giant giant infant because his brain is so big. It's the strangest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> anyway, so um, he um, hates the idea of UFOs and he he got so mad at me for suggesting, how, oh, so here's the point. I'm, I'm sorry. I've 
forgot the most important point. These posts, they're away from you at different distances. They point to a star, and then the distance on the ground to this post tells you in light years how far the star is away. So if you go to NASA, the Hipparchos website, NASA, they'll tell you the um, the three stars of Orion's belt, Alnitak, Alnilam, and Betelgeuse. Mm-hmm. Um, man, pulled that out of the archives. I was all covered <laughs> in cobwebs. But anyway, it, the distance on the ground is the actual distance to those stars. And when you look at NASA, it'll say 25 light years with a standard deviation of five, like give or take five light years. Mm-hmm. On Egypt, it's like, nope, 26.2. It's like more accurate than NASA has been able to uh, to measure. Wow. And so to me, uh, oh, and also under Naptoply, I'm not sure um, – uh, if you uh, saw this part, but under the sand, there's all of these carved disks, and they look for all the world like they're maps of our Milky Way galaxy, and they show lines, almost like bus lines, connecting different planets. In the, I mean, it is the strangest thing in the world. This hmm. guy, Thomas Brophy, that made these discoveries, is so careful to never mention aliens that he got really mad at me for suggesting how I mean, how would you know how far a star was away unless you came from right, there? That's right. some pretty sophisticated geometry to tell a star that far away. And how the three stars of the belt are, um, I mean, how would you know that they're all different distances from each other? And sure. so I right away went to this must be some kind of acknowledgement of something. And he just, he got so mad at me. He would never let me mention uh, aliens. Also, in our show, if you acknowledge the fact that there was a previous chapter of civilization before the one we know now, a pre-Ice civilization, that might well have lasted about ten or 12,000 years, possibly longer, think about where we've come from when we were in a horse and buggy in, like, what, 1700s or so? We were in horse and buggy, and now just 200 years later, we've got Harrier jets, we've got, um, you know, we've, the, how much technology has advanced in the last 200 years? Imagine what a civilization would come up with if they were around for 12,000 years of uninterrupted scientific progress and and so you don't necessarily need to say aliens help them if you the premise of the show that we work from uh which is really supported by the evidence there was this previous chapter of civilization graham calls it graham calls graham hancock our friend graham hancock calls us a race with amnesia that there's this whole previous sure. chapter that we've forgotten or that we are specifically made to forget where all of this technology was developed and it was developed along a different path it wasn't towards external gadgets and metal and pistons but it was a technology that focused on the mystery of consciousness which is still largely a mystery to science today so it was a more advanced science, but it went in a different direction than modern science. So frequently, we don't recognize it as a science. But if you had a informational birthright or a legacy or a hand-me-down from a culture that lasted that long, a lot of the stuff that you would know would seem like it came from aliens. Um, and I'm not saying I don't think there is such a thing as aliens, but that show, Ancient Aliens, really did a disservice to the whole subject by saying everything was aliens, we're not smart enough to have done this themselves. And John West and a lot of really intelligent people say this interesting thing that you're really just kicking the can farther down the road with aliens. And also, it keeps it in the material realm that if, you know, material aliens came here and helped us with these things, uh, one of the things, like Brad keeps saying, there seems to have been access to technology that allowed your brain to tap into things and maybe it was communication with disincarnate entities in another dimension that would leak into your head and give you these technological ideas but i really quite like the idea that humans you know we're really clever and uh, our ability to figure things out is certainly unparalleled on earth um but 
I really like the idea that if you acknowledge this previous chapter of civilization, it explains why Egypt was so advanced. It explains why the same idea and the same reverence and the same religion with only minor outer trappings existed all through the world from this previous um, age. And that through legend and sometimes, you know, through direct survivors of whatever cataclysm brought it to an end, that information informed Egypt and uh, Mesopotamia, Sumeria, and ancient uh, Vedic cultures. And the Vedic cultures are quite explicit about giant building-sized flying cars and the use of atomic weapons. And they don't pull any punches. They're quite explicit about this previous chapter and the amazing things that people were able to do. So I um, I actually knew Edgar Mitchell. I worked with Edgar Mitchell right before he died. and. Oh, wow. um, and, and I got a chance to chat with him for a while, Edgar Mitchell, Sixth Man on the Moon. Hard-ass. Man, he was not a humorous man. He was not a man that you joked around with. And if you're an astronaut, you are a hard-ass. You've been through that centripetal machine. You've been tortured in all these different ways. And and he's an engineer. He's a mathematician. He's an, like People don't focus on how incredibly educated these guys are. And they're tough as nails. Uh, so anyway, he was a no-nonsense guy. You don't mess around with him. You don't joke around with him. But I got to interact with him for a while. And uh, interesting thing about Edgar, Edgar was born in Roswell, New Mexico. How crazy is that? He was born and raised in Roswell, New Mexico. So when Edgar went up, oh, here's an interesting story, by the way, Xavier. Edgar, um, when he was coming back through the, uh, the belts, the Van Allen belt and all the successive magnetic fields, he had a Kundalini experience. Wow. And he was smart enough not to tell anybody about it, but he wrote a book when he came home. So he's, imagine you're an astronaut and you're in that little thing. Assuming that wasn't all fake, but if you're a, a, an astronaut and you're in this little machine and you're coming back through these and you have this absolute Kundalini experience and he wrote about it extensively and he would start crying whenever he talked about it. But he was aware that the individual cells in his body were conscious and suddenly he was like, it's just like billions of little people that were all there and they have their own little lives and their emotions and feelings and they have their own life and they have their own consciousness. And he became aware of them like that was his universe and he was the god of that universe. And that he had these series of epiphanies that we are literally star stuff and all of these things. He actually went up and he brought a bunch of psychic um, test cards and he was doing all these experiments with uh, his consciousness different in space. Is it different outside of the uh, fields? But anyway, that was an amazing thing that some people might not know is that Edgar Mitchell had this Kundalini experience and completely changed his life. And when he came home, I guess there's good money in being an astronaut. When he came home, <laughs> he had all this money and he, uh, I wouldn't do it, but. But um, he used his considerable wealth forever after that. He started this thing called the uh, called IONS, the Inter Institute of Noetic Sciences. Oh, yeah. And I met him because he hired me and the beloved LeVar Burton. I don't know if you remember LeVar Burton from sure. Star Trek. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, LeVar and I, LeVar was the on-camera host, and he and I were joined at the hip for about a year. Wow. And we had so much fun because it was just we were working on this thing on the behest of Edgar, who devoted his entire life to trying to understand the Kundalini experience and the mysteries of consciousness that we can't get access to in the West. And so I've never seen anybody with a more responsible use of income. Edgar like spent his, I'm sure it wasn't his whole fortune, but a huge degree of his fortune for the rest of his life trying to understand and study what the hell it was that happened to him up in space. Sort of like everybody who has a Kundalini experience, you tend to spend the rest of your life trying to figure out what the hell happened. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it brings to mind um, Timothy Leary's Eight Circuit Model of Consciousness, which, which I'm sure you guys know about. And yep, um, he yep. he talks about one of the circuits being just just zero gravity as as triggering something that would um, wow. spark spark something within the human body that you know just kind of like clicks clicks this this thing into activating. So it makes it gives a lot of credit to to what. Um, Leary was was talking about there that's that's phenomenal 
Um, well, that would be the that would be the same premise as a float tank too. Is that you're supposed to sort of float the body so that you 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 give this impression of your consciousness is that the body is has become still or it's floating and that triggers this higher state of consciousness. The same thing that's supposed to happen when you lay down at night to go to sleep. Um, usually, you just end up falling asleep, but you're supposed to enter a state of sleep paralysis and the body thinks, oh, I we're sleeping. And so if you can stay awake during those moments, your consciousness can get to these higher states. And I think that's basically the premise of the float tank would be a similar to zero gravity is that your body is now rendered sort of in a state of suspended animation. Okay, so I want to I want to get to some audience questions. Let's just just bear in mind the time. We've got about 17 minutes or so. So, uh, BB, who says that Magical Egypt changed their life, um, they, they ask, why is there such an aversion to give ancient Egypt its credit? Hey, BB. <laughs> Hi, BB. Uh, BB's awesome. We've, we've talked to BB in the past. Um, BB asks such clear and focused questions that I end up using them as the basis for some of my scripts because she has such a, a she would make a great detective. She has a very logical, inquisitive mind. And some of the questions she's asked has helped me clarify some of my thinking about ancient Egypt. Um, I personally, for the reasons we've talked about, I really feel like in the industrial paradigm, the forces that be that make money off of us, the Machiavellian leaders of rulership that try and hold on to power. If you read the book Machiavelli, it's a handbook for how to hold on to power. And one of the great ways to make sure that the population doesn't rise up against the people who are um, ruling them or subjugating them is you keep the people divided. And also you disempower them by removing their past and their sense of identity. It's the exact same story of the devas and asuras that the angels were tricked into forgetting who they were. And then, you know, when the demons run the culture that has angels imprisoned, and they're only imprisoned as long as they don't know who they are, you can certainly understand a motivation for keeping away these things that point to this superpower that we all used to have and enjoy and aspire to. Um, and that I really do believe that's it. Graham Hancock got banned from TED Talks by saying, by observing, that there was a war on consciousness. And the reason that psychedelics are illegal the reason why you cannot talk about Kundalini on network television. Um, I worked at Fox for 25 years, and I was obsessed with Matt Groening. I used to stalk him and follow him around a lot, and just listen to him talk and stuff. But I would hear him say there was there was times where Homer he would do something with Homer, like Homer would get high, and the censors would let Homer get high if he was an idiot after he got high. But there was an episode where Homer got high and he was really smart, but like the pot made him think better and they censored that show they wouldn't let that episode of the simpsons air because you can talk about drugs but you can't say there's beneficial aspects to drugs and there just seems to be this curation of our reality that's very carefully withdrawn these things um I, by the way uh, i'm reading a peter kingsley book right now that it's the human condition that there's something missing and we don't know what it is but we all respond to these things that we think are going to fill this hole in us and that hole literally is our knowledge of our past and these things that used to empower us that are now taken away and we don't even know what they are we just feel the sense of emptiness but i think too is to be what's the peter kingsley book chance in the dark places of wisdom i can't yeah, remember yeah. it enough no, i figured i wow. figured that was probably it that's i got that one too that's that's a good one for sure um uh but to BB's question too, the thing that I to sort of not answer that question, but to further add confusion to it, like I don't understand. 
the arrogance and hubris of wanting to think that you come from a family tree of idiots. Like why, you know, why, why wouldn't you want to have come from a family tree of brilliant minded people in, instead of saying like, well, they were so it's, it's basically to me like an arrogant teenager who thinks that their parents don't know anything and, you know, have no experience. You know, why would you want to come from a lineage of idiots? It, it, I would much rather come from a lineage of a lineage of ancestors who were brilliant. You know, I don't want to sit there and be like, yeah, those are my, my grandfather was a moron and I'm way smarter than him. You know, it's, it's, it's so strange to me that you want to, that we want to try and keep our ancestors in this, this box of, of, of stupidity. And, and, and again, there's, you know, a lot of modern human beings, we're not very bright, you know, it, um, it's, so we're not talking about the whole group of people. We're talking about like any society Like there's, there's the intelligentsia, there's the people that are very intelligent. And then there's the moron masses that most of us fall into. Right. So it's not just like a whole state the entire ancient Egypt civilization were all these brilliant minded people. But I think the people that were making the temples and the priest craft and the architects and the artists, those people were highly intelligent. You know? Okay. All right. Um, so here, this is the last question that I'm going to take. Uh, Sid asks, uh, I heard Chance mention a lot of musicians having Kundalini. Are there any that he can mention specifically? Any musicians that you know of Chance? Brad, I'm not sure you mentioned that. I don't know. I don't know any. Okay. There are whole albums in the uh, late 60s and early 70s, the whole psychedelic glam rock. There's another word for it. It just really complicated, pretentious rock. There's a whole Genesis album. Gary Osborne turned me on to this. Uh, I'll, I'll find this and I'll send it over to you, Xavier, and you can post it if you want. Um, there were all of these albums that were specifically about the mystery of Kundalini and this transcendent experience. It was very tied up in the psychedelic culture of the 60s. So, um, uh, I'm trying to think of some people I know that are very overt about this, but in some of the Jimmy Page songs, Robert Plant, Robert Plant wrote the words to those, but like Cashmere, but in, in particular, uh, Genesis, there was a whole Genesis album. Um, uh, if I had known this question was coming, I'd have boned up on this a little bit because it is really quite <laughs> no an extensive list of albums from the '60s that specifically focused on this hmm. transcendent experience that was missing from Western culture. For sure, for sure, there's no, there's absolutely no doubt about that. I mean, there's. I think there's a period of time in 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 our society, Western society at least, where where we were focused. You know, there was this sort of enlightenment, mini enlightenment period, definitely during the '60s when, you know, it was like sex, drugs, rock and roll. And now, you know, now I'm not sure where we are actually. Uh, it's it's a it's a strange time to be alive. I I do think, you know, I do think we are sort of in the the middle of a, a spiritual war between light and dark. And I, I do think that this is. This is a very sacred thing that we're doing here with this show, and you know I'm I'm honored to to have you guys here, Astral. You too, man. Thank you so much for your help, and and Brad and Chance. You guys have just been amazing guests. Like I, this is just we've covered so much in this. I mean, it's been two hours. It flew by, and uh, I just I, I loved every second. I I don't think I don't think we dropped, you know the ball anywhere in this it is just packed packed full of information and uh you know I, I i highly highly recommend the uh the magical egypt series go get over there it, it is life-changing um and and i i highly recommend it. it it you know it's funny there was this episode um on kundalini it started talking about kundalini i think in the second season and i i wasn't sure i even i even texted chance and i was like i was like dude 
I'm not sure what happened, but I think I had a vision because of either the series or talking to you. I'm not sure because they both happened like at the same time. And, 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 you know, but I did feel I did feel like there was there was something, you know, bioelectrically happening to me as I was moving through the third season as well. Like just because 